Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. Uh, I'm Santosh Rao, and today I am delighted to be joined by two very inspiring uh, people, uh, one of whom is Matt Ode, who's a 24-year-old uh, personal trainer who was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, he had a, a complex journey that included chemotherapy and surgery and required an ICU stay for 40 days. Uh, and unfortunately, he was in a coma for two weeks. We'll hear more about his story. And he has recovered, and he's now an inspirational speaker who talks about his transformation of mind, body, and spirit, and how he can use his story of resilience to help others going through their own struggles with cancer and other challenges. We also have Amelia Kofaro, who's a yoga teacher uh, and founder of an oncology-based yoga program at her hospital, where she also sits on the survivorship committee. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013, and she is now a passionate advocate for the AYA community. So thank you guys both so much for, uh, for joining me today. Um, I think this is going to be really inspiring and something different. Um, so, you know, let's, let's start. I want to just listen to each of your stories and, um, and, and, you know, your journeys. Uh, I'm going to start with, with Matt. So Matt, um, you got diagnosed with testicular cancer. Just tell us kind of the situation, what your life was like at that time and, um, how things came to, to proceed when, when you got diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm 29 now uh, from Cleveland, Ohio. And as you said in the intro, uh, at 24, I was diagnosed with uh, stage 3C testicular cancer. So at the time, I was a personal trainer, very healthy, um, you know, eating the right foods, lifting all the time. And I eventually over the summer noticed like minor back pains. And, you know, as a young adult, you kind of just shrug it off. And for me, I was like, okay, it has to do with lifting or X, Y, and Z. And it progressively got worse and worse and worse. And one night, I was actually over at my girlfriend's house, Lauren, and um, I ended up puking up blood, got rushed into the emergency room. They did a blood test on me and found out that I'd lost two thirds of the blood circulating in my body. And what they said was equivalent to almost being shot with a gun. So they rushed me in, gave me six bags of blood, put me into an emergency surgery to figure out what was causing the bleeding. And the next morning I wake up and originally they thought it was an ulcer that was kind of causing everything. So you know, I'm waking up, I'm with my parents, it's just me and my parents at the time. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go home thinking everything's okay. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, my doctor, he walks in, and he sits down, grabs my hand, and I just knew right away, like, right away, I knew something was wrong. And um, 
goes, Matt, we, we found an 11 centimeter tumor in your small intestine. We are almost a hundred percent sure it is uh, cancerous and we have to rush you to the main campus of the Cleveland clinic immediately. And at the time I was at a local hospital and the Cleveland clinic is one of the top hospitals in, in the world. So I was very, very um, lucky to be, you know, 30 minutes away from it. So they rushed me there did about a thousand different tests. They did ultrasound, blood work, um, urine, every, everything that I could imagine. They just did those kind of tests. And that's where they discovered that it was testicular cancer. And here's the unique part about it is it never had any symptoms in the testicle. I did have a lump in my stomach, but that was, that was my way of um, having that kind of symptom. So it was really unique in the sense of almost, I would think 90 plus percent testicular patients that's where it forms and you get a lump or you get something that recognizes. And I didn't at that time. So it was very unique and it was something that they hadn't seen very much before. Yeah. So was- you know, I, I, I am a, a gender urinary oncologist. And so I, I take care of testicular cancer patients. And it's interesting. A lot of times people, um, they may notice something, but they didn't pay it any t- attention. You know, I have, I have people who I see who said, you know, six months ago, I felt a little pain there and I just kind of blew it off. Like you said, um, but they have to kind of really scratch their head to think about the symptoms. Can you tell me what kind of testicular cancer you had? Do you know? Non-seminoma is one thing I remember. And then something about a yolk sac tumor okay. as well. So that those are the two things I know for sure that I ended up having. Okay. And so then you had advanced testicular cancer um, and they treated you with chemotherapy. And then you ended up uh, having surgery as well. Uh, your course was very unique, uh, unfortunately, but, uh, it did not go, you know, in a straightforward way. What, what happened? Yeah. So I guess to put it in perspective, um, they usually track testicular cancer with AFP markers. So tumor marker, you would know all about that. I was over 65,000. So it's off the chart. Um, so it spread to thank goodness, not my brain, but all other parts of my body. Um, so they put me on They usually told me, at least my oncologist says, we usually don't do more than four rounds of BEP, which is um, a chemo cocktail, bleomycin, topocytes, and splatin. But they ended up putting me on five rounds of it because um, they just saw that the tumor had um, been so advanced and the cancer had been so advanced. And also another thing they did was they did the chemotherapy first, which I know with most testicular patients, they have um, the the testicle removed. But for me, what had happened was not only was it so advanced, my tumor was wrapped around what's called my inferior vena cava. And for people who don't know your inferior vena cava, for me, from what my understanding is, is it's kind of like a central vein that goes from the bottom of your, of your body to your upper heart. And, and um, for me, it was wrapped around that. So they couldn't do surgery right away. They wanted to shrink that tumor. So that was the number one complication to start. So they put me on five rounds of BEP. I went through you know, all the symptoms, lost my hair within a week and a half, um, was crazy fatigued, had all this nausea. Um, but I did stay on top of my nausea medicine, which was super important. Um, but it it still kind of came back to me at times. So after the chemotherapy, that's where all the main complications happen. So I go to sit down with my oncologist and he basically says, Matt, we've got good news and bad news and good news. Your tumor shrunk from 11 centimeters to three centimeters. But the bad news is it's still wrapped around your inferior vena cava. We're going to have to have three to four different surgeons involved to not only remove your vena cava, but remove the rest of the cancer and everything, you know, that might've spread and in the lymph nodes and stuff. So I had to do an RLPND, which is a rectal lymph node 
Uh, you would probably know the, the full retroperitoneal uh, lymph node dissection. There you go. RPLND. There you go. That's what it is. So yeah, so I had that surgery. It was 11 hours. Um, they did end up having like three to four surgeons involved. And what had happened in that surgery was my body basically shut down and went to compartment syndrome. And I went into that surgery at about 140, 145 pounds. So I'd lost about 40 pounds throughout chemotherapy coming out of the surgery. I was close to 200 pounds. My stomach swelled up like a balloon. I remember I couldn't, I, I didn't wake up till two days after the surgery. And when I did, I couldn't move for another day or two. And, um, my doctor had a draining tube to hopefully, you know, get all the swelling out of the stomach. And he said it should eventually drain. And a week goes by, they finally released me from the hospital. Another week goes by and all of a sudden the draining just like stops, literally out of nowhere, just stops. And I'm in so much pain get rushed back to the emergency room, get rushed into an ambulance back into the hospital. And they end up having to drain seven liters of fluid out of my stomach, which would entailed about three to four extra surgeries. And in addition, my body shut down, went into complete kidney and liver failure. I had a cone drilled in my head to relieve potential um, brain swelling. I had a catheter in my chest, I had a catheter in my neck because they thought I was going to be on dialysis the rest of my life. And that's where my body just took a turn for the worst. And I went to a two week non induced coma as well. Wow. Well, first of all, you look great. So <laughs> it's good. There's a there's a good ending here. I mean, when you were starting to go through all this, um, wh what was your initial re reaction when you first got diagnosed? And then, and then, uh, you know, how, how did you feel? And, and what kind of support did you have as you were going through this? Great question. So we'll go back to when I was first diagnosed. So when I was first diagnosed, the only people who knew were my parents. And of course, they were, you know, crying at the time. And, you know, for me, I looked at it as how am I going to be strong for them? How am I going to be strong for Lauren, my girlfriend? And how am I going to be strong to share the news to all my friends and family? I think I was in so much shock at the time. And, you know, as you know, hours went by and, and a day or two goes by, people started flooding in and starting to visit me. And still I was in shock, but eventually, I think it was about a day later, Lauren finally comes in to visit me. And I didn't know, by the way, we were only dating it for two months at the time. So if she was going to break up with me, I think it was just an emotional roller coaster. I was going to be okay with it because I knew it was a lot of burden, but it was the total opposite. And she basically was like, I'm going to be here every step of the way. And that's where I was allowed to release all my emotions. And I want to share that real quick. It's so important to not hold in what you're going through, especially for men. You know, women, you guys, you women are amazing usually at doing this where you can kind of, hey, something comes up and you just want to share it. And it releases a lot of those emotions you're feeling. For us guys, for some reason, we had this perception or this like connotation that we can't share our emotions or it shows weakness in us. But it's the total opposite. When we're able to express what we're going through and release a lot of the baggage that we have, the anxiety, the PTSD, the depression, whatever it might be, or the, the you know scarcity and fear, it is so therapeutic. And it allowed me to start looking at my experience is everything is happening for me, not to me. And I'm going to go into that really quickly here. What I meant by that is I stopped looking at my scenarios is why is everything happening to me, which means you look at it as an excuse. You blame other people. Or if you're you know, in faith, you blame God or whatever you want to do to get you absolutely nowhere. Or you can take the same exact scenario and say, how is this happening for me? And that allows you to learn from the experience, 
grow through the experience. And even though it's unfair, it still allows you to be a better version of yourself. And then more importantly, it allows you to help the next person who is struggling with maybe a similar situation as you. How did that come about? Because that's a, a real awakening, I, I feel like. But um, I think the natural response is first to think, why me? And mm -hmm. how, did this, how did this happen? Um, how did you get to the point where it sounds like you accepted this in a way? Um, and, t and tell me more about that concept, uh, you know, that this is happening for me instead of to me, because I, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot, I'll tell you, throughout my journey, I had a lot of ups and downs. So there's a lot of times where I made excuses and did not, you know, started having a pity party and becoming a victim of the situation. And then I would, it's the quicker you can get out of that victim mentality and become and letting that situation define you and become victorious, become that better person in that situation. So for me, the number one thing I'm telling you was releasing my emotions to somebody that I truly trusted. You don't have to go like what I'm doing right now. For anybody who's struggling right now, you don't have to get on a podcast and go share everything right away or ever. Really, it could just start with going to somebody that you know, like, and trust and releasing it. So that was number one was letting go of my emotions and being totally vulnerable in the situation. Number two was my faith. I am very strong in faith. Teach their own. I'm not pushing faith on anybody here, but I do want to share my story of faith is a lot of the times when you're going through really difficult times in life, it's hard for the other people who haven't gone through that scenario to completely relate to what you're going through. So I had to rely on, for me, God, I had to rely really strong on my faith. And in addition, I found somebody who could relate to me. I found a, a testicular cancer survivor, a stage three testicular cancer survivor, um, who you know was about three or four years out. And whenever I felt like I needed to share my emotions, I could do that with him. And it allowed me to stop becoming the victim of that situation. And it allowed me to say, listen, I'm not, I'm not the only one going through this. I'm not the one who has gone through this. So why have this negative attitude that's going to get me nowhere when I can look at life is like, Hey, I'm not going to say this is grand and positive. I have cancer, but I'm also going to say, how can I learn from this experience and just become a better version of me? And that's what really helped me through this. That's, that's awesome. Um, I'm going to get it more into your recovery uh, later on in the podcast, but let's continue. So, you know, my, my understanding is you were in the ICU for 40 days you said you had compartment syndrome, you had kidney and liver failure, you were in a coma for two weeks. Um, at some point, you, you basically coded, we call it, you, you had to have CPR for eight minutes, right? Yeah. Um, so you almost died, basically. And yeah. um, I, 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 I've listened to you talk before. Tell me, you, you have some recollection of some of these moments, right? I do. So. Um... Yeah. So I'll share a really cool story. So when I was in my coma, um, my mom held three prayer services, hundreds of people would go to this church and just pray for me. And every day, so I had Lauren and my parents who stayed with me, by the way, every single day in that hospital, they were just absolutely incredible. And she, Lauren would come over and she would just hold my hand and say, Hey, Matt, um, you know, she wouldn't even really talk. She just grabbed my hand and just hope that I'd wake up that day. And literally in the middle of the last prayer service, as people were praying for me and Lauren came over, she started to hold my hand. She saw that I was waking up 
And she ran over to the doctors. They didn't believe her. My parents didn't believe her. They came rushing back in and they found out that I was having some type of hand movement. And, you know, when you wake up from a coma, it's not like you wake up and you can talk. No, it was me opening my eyes and wiggling my fingers, basically. And for me, that was my way of saying, like, God is saying, this isn't the end of your journey. This is just the beginning. And, um, you know, after that, I started to kind of remember a couple of things here and there. Um, and as a week went by, I guess I was starting to make some progress. So they took out the breathing tube and they were going to take out one of the catheters in my neck. And as they went to go take out one of the catheters in my neck, I remember slightly just feeling something totally off. I guess, um, I had an air rhythm heartbeat and which is like super low percentage. I know when taking out a catheter, but I had it. That's what, um, made me code. I went to cardiac arrest. They did eight minutes of CPR on me and, uh, basically brought me back to life. And I went to another one week seduced coma at this point. So I was in another week where nothing except for just like monitoring me. And, um, you know, after that, when I woke up, that's when I realized, um, you know, I didn't know what was necessarily going on, but I realized that I couldn't move my hands. I couldn't move my feet. I couldn't move anything. And I, I basically knew that I had to relearn to live my entire life again. I had from, from laying in that bed to, to taking my very first steps. And that took about a two to two and a half week process with four nurses constantly coming in to help me. So what a story. Um, okay. Let's pause for a second. And I want to turn to Amelia and, um, you know, just, uh, I want to hear your story also of, um, of kind of what, what you went through about seven years ago, eight years ago, right? Well, first I want to say thank you, Matt, for sharing that story and just like take a minute to take that all in. Cause that is, that is an amazing, I hate the word journey in this, but that is an amazing journey. <laughs> um, so, and thank you Santos for including me in this, in this podcast. Um, I was diagnosed with stage three inflammatory breast cancer when I was 28. I at the time was living and working in New York city. I was working in a really fast paced job and about a year before I started presenting all these symptoms, which at 27 with no family history of breast cancer, never in my wildest dreams would I think this could be breast cancer. Um, I also had the back pain, the fatigue, um, about six months into having those symptoms, I came home to see a primary care doctor. At that time, there had been a lump in the top of my breast. I could actually like, palpate a tumor between my fingers. And I was told, um, you're too young for breast cancer. This is probably inflamed muscle tissue. Here are some exercises. Go home and do them. And if it doesn't resolve, come back in eight weeks and we'll ultrasound it. And I went back to New York City, went back to my fast-paced life. And I think just being young and, you know, I was health conscious, but I wasn't thinking I need to be mindful that I have cancer, maybe in my body. Um, went back and never ended up, you know, following up. And so I, another six months went by and finally was like, I was so, my symptoms were so prominent. I couldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even walk. I was waking up in the middle of the night. I was really ill. So I got on a plane from New York and I came back home to Milwaukee where I'm from. And um, it was a really early morning flight. I got off the flight, went right back to that same doctor and she looked and she started to cry and she's like, she wanted to leave the room. I'm like, you can't leave the room. <laughs> what are you doing? 
Um, and so I was like, you know, what's going on? And she said, um, this is either a really bad breast infection or you have inflammatory breast cancer. And I'm like, I've never heard of that before. So thankfully the cancer center was right across the street from the, um, from her office. She sent me across and literally before lunchtime that day, I had a diagnosis, pretty much had a workup. Um, and, and that was that. And so that was February 6th and then February 14th, Valentine's day, I started, um, my treatment. I had four rounds of AC. I was supposed to go on to the next 12 rounds of Texol, but I was so sick from the AC. I had to uh, wait in between, but in between stopping the first treatment and starting the next treatment, I, um, I could see the tumor growing back. It was a really, really aggressive tumor. I was HER2 positive. Um, and so my surgeon was like, let's boost your white cell count. We're taking you to surgery. We're getting that thing out of there. So I went to surgery, I had bilateral mastectomy, no reconstruction because um, I was going to have, I went on to then finish the chemo and then had 12, I'm sorry, six weeks, twice a day radiation. Um, and from so much radiation, they couldn't do implants. And then I finished the full year of Herceptin. So that was like diagnosis to treatment. Wow. Thank you for yeah. sharing. Thank you yeah. for sharing both of you. Um, you know, just listening to you, the, the first thing I was thinking about, other than um, how difficult this must have been, is that you both got really good care. And, um, and you both talked about your doctors as being very emotionally uh, in touch with, with what you were going through. Um, so I, I think that uh, you're lucky, but um, it also shows a side of how we as, as physicians um, feel especially uh, sometimes vulnerable when we're looking at a situation where somebody's young and shouldn't be going through this, and we feel sad about that. We feel sad for anybody who has cancer, but especially when somebody's young, I think it's, it's very difficult to understand, but it also hits us emotionally. So that was one thing that I, that I heard in that. Um, the other thing that I heard is, you know, both of you didn't think that this could be possible. And, I mean, you're not alone uh, I think that, you know, I'm in my 40s and um, I, you know, I'm generally healthy, but I think most of us tend to blow stuff off. There are, as you get older, I think people tend to take things more seriously and some people are very good about prevention. But I think it's just a really common thing is that when you don't expect something to happen, you think that it's probably not going to happen, you know. And um, I want to ask you guys uh, on that front, you know, Knowing what you know now, um, what what do you tell people, especially in their twenties, um, you know, about taking care of yourself and about listening to your body? And and either one of you, um, Matt, if you want to talk, or or Amelia, either one. Yeah, I can start. One hundred percent. I think it needs to be at least a yearly checkup. I mean, you know, for, especially for us males, like, um, you know, I, I know that it gets briefly talked about maybe when we're in school, where we're in health class or something where, Hey, tech, you know, uh, check your testicle or for a woman, it might be check your breasts or X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I, I'm not saying that like everything that like, that seems a little off is going to be like cancer or anything. It's not, but it's always better to be safe and sorry. And for me, I can, I can at least attest that if I wasn't so stubborn, 
I would have gotten this taken care of about three months before. And I guarantee it wouldn't have gotten to the stage I went through. It would have been a lot lower and it probably would have been a lot less complicated than it is, you know, than it ended up having to be. And um, that's all I'm trying to tell people, you know, especially these young adults, you are not invincible, um, you know, but don't, don't constantly go throughout your day with anxiety and worry either. I'm not saying that that is just not okay, but don't just shrug things off. If something's abnormal, just go get it checked out. You know what I mean? Like, it's so simple. I, I, I really can't even say any more to it. It's just like, it's that simple Is like, you'll get it checked out. And if something is wrong, you'll get it way quicker than you just holding it off. So, um, I've just seen a lot of stories where that's been the case. And, um, you know, I just, I really hope that any young adult listening right now, anybody honestly listening that just, if something feels off, it's, it, don't be afraid. It's okay. I know that we all hate going to the doctors and the dentists and all these things, but at the end of the day, it's a lot worse to not go and then have to go because the, the symptom got worse and worse. So that's just my two cents on it. I agree. And I also um, want to add, so first, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard fellow survivors, especially young women say, I went to the doctor, I shared something felt wrong. They told me it was nothing. So perhaps there's an opportunity here um, for doctors to listen more closely. Um, And I think particularly with women, you know, we in history, we've been known to when we share something like it's we're overreacting or overthinking. Uh, for me personally, when I when I saw my tumors on um, on the screen, like I was so curious about everything, right? Because you're thrown into this foreign world, and you're like, "What's happening? What's happening? What is this?" So I decided to be as as best as I could curious, and so I wanted to see the biopsy and the and the tumors. And what I ended up seeing were two tumors shaped like hearts mirroring each other over the heart in the left breast. And for me, that was so interesting and insightful because I had spent so much of my young adult life ignoring my intuition, not using my voice, you know? And, um, and so it was an opportunity to like, to learn how to use my voice and, you know, to say like, this isn't right. And I think even throughout treatment, you know, there were points where like, if something didn't feel right, or I wasn't in, agreement with the decision by a doctor, like I had to be brave and, (laughs) and speak up. So I think, um, just to kind of echo what Matt said, you know, don't ignore it, trust yourself. Um, it's better to, to be more proactive than not. Um, and then, you know, just, I think another thing that, that comes to my mind is that, uh, the stage of life you guys were, were in, uh, at that time, um, it's it's you know it's it's an exciting time in life. You know everybody's different in terms of what their situation is, but uh, generally you're kind of just starting out in terms of your career, um, starting your life. You know, and some people may have kids at that age, some not. Um, how did you deal with the overwhelming feeling of what you were going through, but also thinking about um, you know your future? Like for example, Matt you know, did you think about children? Did they bring that up with, uh, you know, um, basically sperm banking? And same with Amelia, you know, with everything you went through, did you think about, about you know, basically your, your, your social life, children, all those kind of things? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So for me, uh, I did sperm bank. I did it twice. 
to make sure. So they, they immediately, the second they found out that that's what it was, they're like, listen, we need to, if, as long as this is what you want. And I was like, absolutely. They sperm bank me. So for the children part, um, yeah, I'm still with my girlfriend. There's good, you know, we're probably getting married this year. Um, you know, things like that. So kids are going to be, have you, relative- propo- have you proposed? Are you doing no, that? No. On, are you doing that on the podcast right <laughs> now? <laughs> yeah. It's all kind of coming together. So if we were to talk, don't listen, this- Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't know when she just knows that we're getting really close. I mean, actually it's been five yesterday was exactly our five year anniversary from when we met. So it's a big day for us. Um, and I can share a little cool story about that, but yeah. So what I would say is, um, how I look at it is, I focus on the things I can control in my life and I'm doing, if I can do everything that I can control and I'm taking the the steps necessary to potentially have, you know, kids through my bloodline through, um, you know, recovering and, and figuring out my path in life. If I can focus on those things and drown out the things that is uncontrollable in my life, it really does make a massive difference in my emotional and mental health. Cause I would tell you, almost all the time that I get anxiety is false stories that I create in my head that are uncontrollable. And I take it to the most extreme. That's basically anxiety in a nutshell is you take a scenario and you make it as worse as possible. And your body physically reacts to that just as much as it does mentally. And I used to have extreme anxiety throughout my before cancer and I learned to cope with it. And then cancer hit and I had it a little bit again, but it wasn't even as bad as I used to. And now I'm really learning to embrace and, and cope with that side of my, my mental health. So for me, um, I expect that we're going to have kids. I really do. I believe it. Um, I stay strong in my faith with that. But if the day came and we had to go a different direction, I'm not going to dictate my entire happiness or my entire life over a scenario that I could never control. I couldn't control that. So this is how, that's exactly how I look at that. Now, as, a, as my path in life, I think for a lot of us, this is where a lot of people feel stuck after cancer. This is like a untalked about thing that most people really don't talk about is as a survivor, you aren't the same person you were before, you know, before you were diagnosed and the emotional baggage that gets put on you from scanxiety to having to figure out what that next step is, to feeling like you've been given a second chance and a bigger purpose, but the people who love you the most want you to be that person that they knew before then. And you're like, no, I'm not that person anymore. I'm a stronger individual. And maybe you don't go out drinking with your friends on the weekends all the time, or you have bigger ambitions and bigger goals, which I did. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And yes, I lost some friends along the way, but you know what? I gained stronger friends. I gained stronger relationships. And that's what helped me grow is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to not predicate my emotions off of other people's approval and focus on what I need to do with my life. And I'm not, and as long as it's ethical, as long as it's, you know, I know it's not something that's just like, I'm not doing drugs or anything stupid. I'm going on a path to where I want to help people. And if I lose some friends along the way, it hurts me, but I know it, it has nothing. It's not about me. It's about them, just whatever they're feeling in that moment. So that's kind of how I've been living my life as a survivor. And I know it's very challenging for a lot of people from worrying about when cancer is going to come back or worrying about, Hey, will I ever have kids or where do I go next? Which is very stressful. And, um, I would just say this, just take it day by day and focus on your mental, um, physical and emotional health. And, you know, once you get taken care of you, use your experience, if you'd like 
to um, start getting into the community. That's what I did. I just started to get into the cancer community and I started giving back and it made a big difference. Well, you just, uh, I think you talked about almost everything I was going to talk about the next half an hour. So <laughs> we'll unpack that because there's a lot there. Um, I, th I think for, for men in particular, I know when I was uh, 24, I was not even thinking about what my family life would look like. I, you know, I'm married now and I think women are different, you know, not all, but a lot of women uh, think ahead. Um, I had not thought ahead. So I would imagine that just that question of, okay, are you interested in having children? And, you know, we got to save your sperm and this, that, and um, that must've been pretty, you know, kind of uh, tough and, and, yeah, it was a weird conversation with Lauren, especially since we had only been dating for two months. <laughs> right. It wasn't like, I wasn't necessarily just doing it for her. I was doing it for my own sake of like, hey, maybe we're together. Maybe I'm with somebody else. So yeah, it was, you're right. Last thing you're thinking at 24, 28 is even 28 necessarily, maybe at 28, but you're really not like, most people aren't exactly folks and kids. Um, you know, some, some are at that age. It's just, you teach their own. But yeah, I was, that was the least thing on my mind. I was like, I had no idea. So well, I I will follow up on on a lot of what you talked about. But Amelia, what about what about you? It's different. Your journey has been different, and you, you didn't like that word, but uh, your path. Um, <laughs> you know, um, did how did that feel? You know, you made a, a decision to have a double mastectomy, for example, at a young age. I mean, that must have been very difficult too. Yeah, so I did not have time to save eggs um, where I was at in my cycle and where. Um, and how quickly I needed to start treatment, I didn't have that option. So I was fine with that. I have never um, been somebody who has been like, I know I want to have kids. I know that's a part of my life. It's always been in question for me. Um, I will say, I think as, you know, the further I get out, now this year I'm approaching 37, um, now the pressure's on to harvest whatever good eggs I have left which brings up a whole other issue for me, which is, is the safe, is that good for me? Um, I was not in a relationship when I was diagnosed. I'm not in a relationship now. So I think there are definitely times where I'm like, what do, what do I do? Like, this is such a big decision. But I also, I really, uh, I like what you say, man. And this is how I've also tried to live my life, which is if it's meant to be, it's going to be like, I think the more I resist or try to force something in my life, like it never goes well. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there certainly have been a lot of times in this experience where I've been surprised in the most delightful of ways. So I have this like hankering that I'm going to have twins. I get these messages from the universe all the time. Like I just, I don't know, twins run in my family. I think it's something that's going to happen for me. And like you said too, Matt, like it could look a lot of different ways. I could adopt, I could find a surrogate, you know? So I think there's a lot of beauty in just like trying to stay open to the experience. Um, um, I think that's really valuable what you, what you said. Uh, you know, I, I feel like when things are working right for me even, uh, it's when I just let kind of life teach me and I don't, you know, prejudge, you know, how I want it to go. Um, but I accept the lessons that I'm that I'm given in a sense because we're not completely in control of everything. Um, and then and, and then sometimes it turns out better than you would even right. try to make it. <laughs> or you change yeah. through the process. Um, I wanted exactly. to get into a couple things Matt touched on. One was the anxiety. 
Um, so, you know, let's start talking a little bit about, you know, obviously I want to focus on uh, as an integrative, uh, a podcast dedicated to integrative medicine and integrative oncology. Anxiety is something that we talk about a lot, you know, and, and there are different things that we sometimes recommend. Uh, what, I'm, I'm assuming both of you had some anxiety um, in different ways, but what did you find useful was it the social support? Um, did either of you, you know, I, now Amelia, I want to hear from you about the yoga journey and how you got into yoga if you, if you weren't already at that time. Was it the yoga? What did you use? What do you think uh, is useful? You know, and, and what would you recommend? So I think um, I, it's interesting. I, before I got sick, had planned to do a yoga teacher training that obviously got put on hold about halfway through my treatment, not halfway, after the AC when I was really, I really didn't think, I thought that was it. I thought AC was like, I'm headed out the door here. And there was a moment when, um, you know, I had a period of several weeks, like I wasn't even able to walk. And so going from being somebody who could go to a power yoga class <laughs> to not walking, I quickly learned that I had to adapt and that yoga for me became so much more than just movement. It was breath work, guided relaxation, meditation. Like I learned that there were other tools of yoga to support me. When did that, so when did me, that start? How long after the AC or surgery? Um, so about the third or fourth round of AC was when I got really, really sick. Um, and that's when I couldn't, I was, I couldn't go to yoga class. I was working one-on-one -on -one with someone. I couldn't do that. Um, so it just became about breath. And I think that's when I learned how to manage my anxiety with breath work a lot. For some people that can make them anxious. For me, it was really supportive because it literally brought me back to this moment. And I learned so deeply, I think, in that, in that moment, in that experience, that if I could do my best to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and one breath after another, I had much more support for myself to manage anxiety. Um, and I think too, just with regards to, you know, integrative modalities, it's never just a one size fits all approach for people or one modality. For me, it was yoga, meditation, breath work, Reiki, cranial sacral work, uh, nutrition. I had a lot of different tools. Um, and the one that I keep coming back to the most, I think, throughout my journey and something I'm super fascinated by is self-compassion, which is the ability to be kind to yourself in moments that are difficult because I think sometimes even more taking care of ourselves, we do the best that we can. And even then it's overwhelming. It's like, okay, I have to wake up and meditate and juice and do this. <laughs> and some days that doesn't happen because of life. And so if I can just be like, you know, that's okay. Or in a moment that's difficult, I just finished an eight week training in self-compassion as a part of a larger training. And what was most transformative for me about that. And I think that is helpful to AYAs, or at least was helpful to me, was being able to just acknowledge this moment is difficult. It's just like, it's so, it opens up so much. So, um, so I like to look at this really, the integrative health as truly integrative. It's never just one thing or works one way, but it's really meant to meet you where you are. And what I'm hearing from both of you is just how powerful your voices are and how you seem to have, uh, really learn something about yourself. Uh, you've been through something that most of us uh, will not go through and, and it has made you stronger. I can hear that. And uh, b 
part of it is you're both telling a story where you basically at some point accepted this um, and, you know, spread your emotion, let it out, but also had some love and compassion for yourself. That's that's kind of what I'm hearing and that things seem to turn at least a little bit uh, around at that point in terms of you not fighting the process so much um, and kind of learning from it, but kind of growing through that process. Am I getting that right, Matt? hundred percent. You know, Amelia, you hit almost every, every pretty much part of anxiety, breathing, taking care of your body through nutrition and movement, um, self-compassion. Oh my gosh. Like the number one thing I've learned is stop putting expectations on yourself. When you put expectations on yourself, you put so much pressure that if you don't get that task done throughout the day, you feel like a failure. And that's not how it is. That's not how life is. You're going to go through ups and downs and you're going to have difficult times in your life. But you got to still learn to love yourself, even through the ups and the downs. And when, you know, other people may not believe in you, things like that. Um, so powerful. And, you know, for me, I would say the number one of the biggest things for me was definitely my mindset, but like learning to be present in the moment, um, learning to be grounded, learning to say, hey, listen, anytime I constantly keep worrying about the past or constantly keep worrying what could potentially happen in the future, it's only going to create depression or anxiety. And um, when you learn to stay grounded and start to really appreciate your time and your energy, you know, I think your time and your energy is one of your most valuable currencies you could have. It's not money. It's your time that you're spending on things that are productive or with people that you care about and that are going to help you get to that next destination. And that was another thing that helped me with my anxiety was surrounding myself with like-minded people that when I said I felt stuck or I needed to get to a certain destination in my life, they were going to be there to support me because lack of clarity in my life is where a lot of anxiety comes from. When I don't have clarity in a certain area and I feel so uncertain and so stuck, that's when I rely on, um, you know, the people that I know is going to help me through those situations. So Amelia, you hit like everything, you know, nail on the head. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Matt, you were talking about friends and stuff. I mean, what happened? Were, were, did you just kind of outgrow certain friendships or, you know, were there people who just didn't know how to relate to you, um, just were in the going out phase and were like, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I lost some of my best friends. Um, one of them, he, it's going to sound kind of shitty that I'm saying this, but I think he resented me for some reason, because when I started to not drink every single weekend with him or talk about high school glory days and gossip about other people and said, listen, I'm done with that because I'm not trying to do things anymore to fit into a certain group. I'm doing things for myself. And if you can't accept me for who I am, then so be it. And it hurt him. And he would potentially gossip to other of his friends, just like he used to always do. And some of those friends, um, let me put it this way. 90% of my friends are still my friends, but I have that 10% and it hurts. It really does. You know what it feels like when you lose a good friend in, in something and it really hurts. And I lost a couple of them. And to this day, um, I've really learned though, that people come and go, even the ones you think that should be in for the rest of your life, they were there for a lesson. They were there for something to help you grow. And for me, how I learned from it was be a genuine person and never be somebody else to um, be accepted into whatever group you're in. And that's what I did. And you know what? I've gained so many more new friends. It's unbelievable because you know what I did? 
I started surrounding myself with entrepreneurs. And this is why. So in my beginning of my journey, I, I, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, instead of jumping right into the cancer community, I jumped into the entrepreneurial community because what they do is they take a massive problem, they solve it, and then they use it to help other people. And every single one of them starts off with only them but being able to believe in that situation. And that was me at the time. I only I was like one of the only people. I mean, I had Lauren who, gosh, I don't know how she believes in half the stuff I do, but she just does and she's my support. But it's still very lonely when you want the support. Even my parents didn't believe in me. Even a lot of people didn't in the very beginning. The very beginning is the absolute loneliest, I'm telling you. But once you can break through that mold and realize that you know you're not alone in that journey and there's other people doing the same thing, that's what I did. I surrounded myself with those people and they got me into motivational speaking. And I was so nervous. I used to be that kid in high school that would shiver for two weeks because I knew I had a, an event coming up that I had to speak at. I, I hated it. And then when I found out that, listen, I can actually talk about something that I'm passionate about, that is something meaningful to me. I let all of those fears go. And the more consistent I got, the better. So. Yeah. I mean, you're really, you're using your experience to help others, which is yeah. uplifting to others, but also I think to you as well. Um, you know, Can I, mean, I add something there please. quickly? So Matt, I think it's so interesting you talk about surrounding yourself with entrepreneurs because I myself am one and I'm very steeped in the entrepreneurial community here. And lately I, I've been thinking, I'm like, what is it about this community I also love? And for whatever this is worth, um, you know, there's so many unknowns in the path of entrepreneurship and the way that I'm learning and um, I'm learning different methodologies and tools. It's like you try something and it doesn't work or it works. You keep pivoting. And I think that what you go through as an entrepreneur is so similar to a cancer journey and the lessons are one in the one in the same almost. So I don't know. That was that was so interesting. That is interesting. That <laughs> yeah. And, and I also find yeah. it interesting. I mean, this happens, I think, recurrently in life is you know, it is empowering to feel like you can uh, choose who you want to surround yourself with. Um, but the other thing is people change. And, um, you know, the older I get, some of those people who I was friends with that I'm not friends with anymore, suddenly now I am again. You know, like th that's interesting too. And, and I, I embrace that. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys about, you, you mentioned this map before that you, you found uh, at least one person who had gone through what you did. For either of you, I mean, what was the support and what, what kind of things are out there? And if they are out there, if they're not out there, I want to hear about for AYA, which means adolescent, young adult, right? Um, what, are, what are the resources that are out there and what would you like to see uh, for both of you? Um, uh, if you want me to go first, I can. Sure, uh, sure. So the Cleveland Clinic has what's called a Fourth Angels Mentor Program. What the face, fourth, um, a Fourth Angels Mentor is, is basically... Um, they have, they find a person who's a survivor that has gone through very similar path as you. And obviously that person has to sign up to be a fourth angels mentor. But like for me, I'm a fourth angels mentor for the Cleveland clinic. I said, listen, I want to be, if any, you know, young adults going through testicular cancer and they need somebody to talk to through moral support and feeling like they're not alone in this journey, I'm a hundred percent here for them. So that is what the clinic has done. And there's other nonprofits out there who does it. There's one called, um, uh, I, I forget, but there's a couple other ones that I've, I've, I've um, joined as well. So if anybody needs me, I'm there to kind of help them. So that's one thing. And another thing I've done is I created a Facebook group. There's Facebook groups out there that are absolutely incredible. I mean, I started my Facebook group in October of 2020 just for this, the mental and emotional support of cancer. 
And we're over 2,200 members today. And it just goes to show that the power of just being able to be there for somebody in the relatability. So um, you can create your own community. You can join um, hospitals or nonprofits to help them through that. Um, I don't give actual medical advice. I just give emotional and mental support to everybody. And that's what I think a lot of people need um, along with yourself as an, an incredible, um, you know, a doctor and nurses, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be here today without them, but you know, we also have that point in our life where we need those other people. So that's what I've been doing. So social media, obviously, you know, folks who are younger are, are really savvy with social media. You feel like, you know, that's, that's a happening thing where people are, are interested in sharing and, and joining in communities and things like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a private group. So they feel immediately, I make them feel like a family, a safe place to open up to what you want to. And I'll tell you right now, some of these stories are absolutely incredible. And Amelia, if you want to join the community um, after this, just send me an email and I'll be glad to get you in. Um, it's just so loving and supporting. That's all it is, is, is like, you know, we share our vulnerability, we share the tough times, but then immediately we give the positivity. Well, good so. for you. Good for you. And Amelia, you, I know you're very active in this area. You're an AYA advocate um, and you're you know, engaged uh, within the Society for Integrative Oncology for an AYA task force, I think, right? Um, tell us a little bit about kind of the resources that are out there. What, what do you envision uh, that there should be or what, what, do, what would you like to, to have you know, for, that's for people? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there are a lot of resources out there right now. If you go to websites like Stupid Cancer or uh, Elephants and Tea, you know, there are definitely websites with lots of resources, financial, fertility, um, health and wellness. I think something we're trying to do that I hope to do with the AYA SIG and in um, some of my work with Dr. Perez at Harvard is to vet some of those resources, especially when it comes to health and wellness, because um, we want to make sure we are providing people with uh, really sound quality resources. I love what Matt said about the one-to-one -one mentorship um, in the breast cancer community. There's something called ABCD, which is after breast cancer diagnosis. So they pair you one-on-one -on -one with somebody. And I think a lot of people really enjoy that. For me, it was really hard because nobody had the kind of cancer I had at my age. And so that's when I turned to the health and wellness community because um, it was really challenging for me to be paired with somebody twice my age um, who didn't know what I was going through. And I, I wanted to focus on ways to, um, you know, support myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. So there are a lot of things out there. I think as the more, it's amazing. I have to say from the time I was diagnosed until now, how much has come out, you know, we are definitely making momentum and making change there. So tell us a little so, bit about the study. You touched on it. So it's, sure. it's a study at Harvard, you said? Yeah, so I met Dr. Giselle Perez a couple of years ago at a uh, mind-body medicine conference at Harvard and uh, heard about her work. So she is doing research using mind-body medicine for stress management and resiliency in AYAs after treatment. So we know that there's a gap in even survivorship care. You finish your treatment, you're handed a folder, and then they're like, see you later. <laughs> so, um, so getting some of those resources and tools to AYAs to support themselves. Um, and one of the things we're doing, so there's kind of a two-track 
uh, project. She's got the study, but then there's a group of us, AYAs, that meet as her stakeholder group. So I project manage that group. Um, and right now we're trying to find ways to come together to find where there are gaps um, in delivering these resources and information to improve that for people. So um, we're a group of like 10. And um, and so that's that's what we're working on together. Yeah, it's really exciting. That is exciting. I, yeah. I want to um, finish this by kind of listening to how you guys uh, recovered. You know, I mean, uh, Matt, you talked about everything up until that. Um, but I want to I want to hear how, how how did you get back to or not get back, but how did you how did you recover? How did you move forward? And especially, um, you know, as as a as an oncologist, I think one of the things that I recognize is that every scan you mentioned the scan anxiety, it's tough, you know, because especially if you have a serious diagnosis, you just you really don't know sometimes, you know, what the scan's going to show. Um, how did you deal with that, uh, especially you know with everything you went through? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the the scan anxiety part. Um, you know, when it, in the very beginning, it was, it was extremely stressful. And, you know, it's every three months to start off with, I would get checked up, I get a CT scan, I get blood work, I get an x-ray. And, um, you know, that week leading up was extremely nerve wracking. And sometimes the two weeks leading up, but, you know, as I progressed, as time progressed, and it went from three months to eventually six months, now I'm at a year, um, or close to a year. The thing I really realized that has helped me so much was, um, you know, I think not just time, but me realizing that, um, you know, it kind of goes back to the uncontrollable and controllable part, you know, um, what can you can control in your life and what can't you control? So when I said, listen, I can control my diet. I can control the fact that I work out. I can control the fact that I meditate and breathe. I can control those things in my life. I can control the fact that I'm sharing my um, emotional journey and it's helping me through my anxiety and all of this. At the end of the day, I cannot just constantly focus on the, the unknown. And that's what I think a lot of people do. I will tell you this though. I all the time have it about two days before. All the time. And I, I don't know if that'll ever go away or not. I mean, two days before our scans, I think everybody, I don't care if you're 15 years out, 30 years out, you're always going to have some type of, uh, of nervous, you know, of, of anxiety, but that's okay. It just means you care, but don't let it define you for an entire month or two months or, or as soon as you get the checkup, you feel like something's wrong and you have to go get checked up again a lot. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's just for me, um, it's, it's taking control of what I can do with my life. And it's, it, that's just been the biggest part. Now with the whole recovery process, it was really focusing on, I mean, I was 110 pounds, by the way, when I was released from that hospital. So wow. yeah. So when I got done with that, relearning to walk again, I had one more surgery and what had happened was my stitches popped open and they had to rush me in for a fifth major surgery. And they ended up doing um, an open wound surgery on me. They took out all of my abdominals. I had a massive lump, lump on my stomach and it took a full year for the skin to eventually heal. And it was about a football sized wound on my stomach. So that in itself was really challenging for me. And I think a lot of people can attest is when you go through cancer, um, body image issues is a really challenging thing for a lot of us is, you know, and I had to deal with that because I was a personal trainer, super healthy before all this. And then all of a sudden I'm 110 pounds looking like a skeleton. So first thing I had to do was 
get out of the victim mentality, which took honestly a couple of weeks. By the way, I ended up back in the hospital a week after because I didn't take care of myself. After that, I had this deep discussion and basically said, if I don't do the things I need to do, this is life or death. I probably won't be here next month or in a couple of months. So I literally took a 180 and did one little thing every day. This is all I did. If any of you are on this journey right now of health or recovery, stop. It's good to have a big goal, but stop trying to look for instant gratification. Stop saying, oh, I need to get there tomorrow. Focus on what you have in front of you today. And that's all I did. I said, maybe I need to go out and move 50 meters. Next day, maybe I need to lift a five-pound dumbbell and do a bicep curl. Maybe I need to eat something. And guess what? Slowly but surely, I started gaining the weight back. I started gaining the mindset back because guess what? When you do things consistently, it creates momentum. And when you have momentum, it eventually turns into rituals and routines. And when you have a ritual a ritual and routine in your life, it's almost like clockwork that you wake up and it's not even something that you have to stress about anymore. It's just part of your daily routine. And that takes a couple of months to get into that. But you consistently keeping the promises you make to yourself saying, when I am going to go, this is how I look at it. It's, it's not putting expectations on yourself. It's when you say you're going to go do something. You just go out and do it instead of making the excuse of why you can't. And then if you fail along the way, so be it. That's okay. Where, where I say don't put expectations on yourself is that if you fail, you feel like a failure. It's not true. If you fail, it's actually a learning lesson. It's a way to grow. It's a way to become that you know stronger individual. So what I say is when you put something out there and say, I'm going to do this today, you at least give it a try. Give it a shot. And that's what I told myself. I'm going to keep doing that. And um, I healed. Within, you know, it took me about two years to fully get to where I was and say, hey, I want to go do something bigger with my life. But it was day after day and consistency doing just something small. Are you still are you still a personal trainer? I am. But since COVID, I haven't done any personal training. So I've actually been lucky enough to really focus all my energy and attention on to like speaking and getting into different cancer communities, building my Facebook group. But I am a personal trainer, yes. I'm certified through ACE and everything. So, Well, you must be one heck of a personal trainer. <laughs> 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 Making me kind of feel like working out tomorrow. Um, <laughs> what, about, what about you, Amelia? I mean, how did you, you know, you, you're a yoga instructor now. I mean, I think that's amazing. And um, how did you kind of get back on your feet and get active and, uh, you know, feel whole? I love that term wholeness. Um, so I think for me, you know, I, I really like and appreciate what you said, Matt, about those small steps every day. It's really easy to be like, okay, now I'm going to go back to the rest of my life or like go back to normal um, and want to do it all. Especially for me, I have a, some anxiety with like time. Oh, <laughs> is this it? Is this going to be it? You know, that comes up for me sometimes. So I want to do all the things. Um, but I bring myself back to one thing a day, I think coming out of, um, when I was fresh out of it, it was much more challenging to learn those boundaries. Um, but there's something I've worked on over time. And I I also want to echo what you said earlier, like healing was not just physical, but it was changing relationships in my life. Um, having better boundaries, saying no to things that like I didn't want to do and, and learn how to be okay with that. Uh, yoga was a big part of that. Um, I practiced like 10 years even before I got sick and then did the teacher training um, about a year into my treatments. And so I think 
just um, being on that path of teaching has also been really healing and, and sharing tools so that other patients can empower themselves learn how to use their voice. I, uh, I have something called a TEP53 mutation, which means I'm high risk for multiple cancers throughout my life. So managing anxiety is really important to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's a, that's such a great question. I think community has been really important. There's so many things that I'm like, even though I have my notes on this, I'm like, there's so many things, um, and so many wonderful people in my life that I'm so grateful for because I would not be sitting here without them, undoubtedly. Well, I want to thank both of you from the bottom of my heart because of the courage you had to tell your stories, but just how inspiring uh, you guys are. I mean, you embody what we would like to see in terms of how people um, go through this and move forward and 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 share, you know, because both of you are doing something to help others. And, and you know, you both talked about gratitude and about uh, lifting others up. I think that's that's very good for, for the community, but also for you guys as well. You also both talked a lot about your, you know, physical health, mental and spiritual as well. And you really embodied that. I heard a lot of, you know, staying in the moment and, and a very kind of living with, with mindfulness, you know, in mind. Um, and I think that got you through uh, a lot of a lot of things, both before and now. But you're also very physically active, and you've, even though you're different than before your your cancer diagnosis, you have found a way to get back to to being experts in in your field with yoga and with uh, personal training. Um, so that impressing to, impressive to me, and also the spirituality component. Um, we're all different in terms of our spiritual. Um, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, take on things, um, you know, whether it, you call it faith, whether you call it just having purpose in life. But it, it's very clear to me that you both have a lot of purpose in life and that you're, you're, you're full of energy and full of faith. And, um, and that's really inspiring. So, so I want to thank you for all of that. I just want to thank you again, both for the opportunity and, and to learn more about you, Matt. It's been amazing. One thing I think that's really important for AYAs and um, even providers, you know, as we go along this path is the mental health resources and making sure that those needs are met. Um, AYAs report a lot of the time, they don't have those resources. So mental health and working with um, therapists who may specialize with young adult patients, and I think particularly therapists who integrate um, any embodiment practice is amazing. Um, and I guess my last thoughts are, you know, healing isn't linear. You don't start at A and think you're going to Z, as Matt, I'm sure you know. So how can you have every possible joy along the way? How can you allow for every crappy thing to also come up and to just learn to ride that wave um, as best as possible? Because we have this one precious life and things are hard. It's important to allow them to be hard, but it's also possible to choose to find joy and to find meaning and purpose. Um, and that's available to us in any moment. Love it. Thank you. Yeah. First off, for both of you, thank you so much. And, you know, Amelia, um, thank you so much for sharing your story as well. So powerful. And what you're doing with community is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I guess for my last message would be um, just like you said, make sure 
you are enjoying the, the journey. If you think you're only going to find happiness at the destination and you're miserable throughout the journey, it's never going to happen. You're going to be just as miserable when you reach that, that last you know, stage or that goal that you want if you can't enjoy that journey. And what I mean by enjoying the journey is you don't have to be so gung-ho and happy every day, but you need to celebrate your small victories. Stop, stop diminishing your small victories in life. When you have a small victory, learn to celebrate it. Learn to say, hey, listen, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud, but I'm not, I'm never satisfied. I'm always proud of what I'm doing, but I'm never satisfied. Meaning I want, I want to reach more, but I give myself the credit I need that I deserve. And it's not, it's not boosting your own ego. All it is, is it's giving you the credit so that you aren't just feeling like you're miserable till you hit that destination. And, um, I'll tell you right now, what has always helped me to enjoy the journey is gratitude and perspective. And Amelia, and, and I know all of us can, can attest to this is when we're having down days and tough moments, we can always look back at a certain part of our journey and instantly we can say, wow, okay, I might have been having a bad day, but trust me, I can almost guarantee you I was in a worse position. I was in a rock bottom situation here. I almost wish that, and not, I, I wish nobody gets cancer, but I wish in your situation of where you're at, you hit a rock bottom situation. Here's what I mean by that. Falling flat on your face is one of the best things you could ever do. I'm telling you right now, failure is what you, is what allows you to grow. If you only had success, just like you were saying, Amelia, if you're just going to straight line, you're never going to learn anything and you're never going to have progression in your life. Fall flat on your face and you'll realize that it's not as bad as you always thought it would be. You know, and even us, we went through this challenging experience and look where we're at now. We're so much better and stronger because of it. So that's just what I want to express to you guys. And um, thank you again. I really appreciate it. This was a fun time. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt the flow of like all these really tender things being said because it's, it's related, but unrelated, which is really, you know, and Santosh, I think specifically with integrative health, um, you know, this is not a one size fits all approach, as I said, but I also think so. I, I kind of see it as AYAs are underserved, but then we have subpopulations within that that are also underserved. So the disparities in race and socioeconomic status hmm. and gender, and it's it's really an opportunity for us to figure out how are we going to appropriately address the truly individual needs of AYAs who are experiencing not only cancer, but other challenges, um, other challenges in life. So how, however we can do that together, I think is a really um, important time in our world and in our current events right now, but, and, and even more importantly, um, how are we serving these patients who, who might need um, more support in that way? Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. A lot of work yes, to there do. Is. Yeah, that was great advice. Uh, I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.